Oh, dear Lord Jesus, if ever we love you, Lord Jesus, it's now. As you meet us in this moment in our individual lives and share life, we're reminded that we love you because you first love us. As we come now to open up your word together, we know that you make your approach to our church, to this room, to whatever room we're in, most importantly, to our minds and hearts. You're approaching us through your word and spirit, Lord. Uh, we pray now that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more dearly, and that we would follow you more nearly. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we begin a three-part conversation on decisions. Good decisions, hard decisions, bad decisions. I, I realize as I prepare this, I have a love-hate relationship with decisions. I'm so often trying to put myself in a place where I can maximize my decisions, the ability to make decisions. And then when I finally get there, I don't actually want to make the decision. Uh, you know, it's hard work making decisions. This is the problem I have with Chipotle and Subway. You know, I find myself there and they're like, how do you want it? And I'm like, you know what? You've made this thing all day long. You're the expert. You tell, you tell me how, how, how it should be made, right? I, I mean, it's very not polite, I know, but that's what I oftentimes say. Or at the end of the day, we're scrolling through the media and the question, what do you want to watch? And I go, oh, no, I've been making decisions all day long. I can't make another single decision. So usually what we do is we scroll for 90 minutes and then watch half of something we'd already seen before. And that's it. So... We make a lot of decisions. Life is decisions. And some of them are wonderful. Some of them are challenging, exhausting. Some of them are painful. What does the scripture say about our decisions? Well, let's talk about that for three weeks together. Today, we want to think about good decisions. Next week, hard decisions. And the week after that, bad decisions. Especially those decisions that other people make for us. Bad decisions. The through line for this conversation is a single verse that we find in the Old Testament, the writings of a man named Jeremiah. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles with me then to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. You'll find this on page 616 of the, uh, which is odd, of the Pew Bible. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand and let's read God's word aloud together. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, on page 616. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. You can read the last part to yourself if you want. I can, I can tell what you're thinking. <laughs> I just want 16A and I should have said that. Stand, look, ask, walk. Stand, ask, stand, look, ask, walk. Slaw. I don't know what it means, but it's in the text. Stand, look, ask, walk. Let's think about this. Good decisions. First, stand. I picture a traveler as I read this verse in the wilderness of Judah, probably a dusty, barren plain. They've come on a footpath, walking a long journey. And there's a, an intersection, a crossroads, a place where other paths cross. And they come and they realize 
I could go left or right here, or I could go forward or backward here, or I could take my own way. The text says stand, because this is a place of decision. Recognize this is a moment of decision. There's an opportunity here, there's a responsibility here. You got choice, you got options, you got agency. What you do at this crossroad will affect in some way, small or large, the future. So stand. Don't just cruise through. Don't just, with your head down, follow the footprints in front of you. Don't just take the wide road. Stop the journey for a moment. Stop long enough to think about where you're going, where you've come from, and that there is a fork in the road. Recognize the crossroads. Stand, Jeremiah says, of the Lord through him. Stand. Now, around 622 B.C., the people of Judah had a decision to make. They had to decide what path they would take collectively. If you know your Old Testament history, 100 years earlier, the northern tribes of Israel, the 10 tribes, had entered into political alliances with uh, neighboring nations. They did this to try to protect themselves, but it didn't go well. In time, those nations would come and destroy Israel and carry away God's people into captivity. They say those who marry the spirit of the age will be widows in the next. Those 10 tribes, they did what nations do. They did what you did in that culture. They embraced the culture. And now Judah is facing similar pressures. What will we do? Will we just go along? Will we just do what everybody in the culture is doing? Will we do what we've always done? Will we go in the same direction? Will we course correct? The Lord through Jeremiah is helping Judah see that they face a decision. They're at a crossroads. Stand, the Lord says. Sometimes I think that I feel anxious because I'm facing too many decisions. You know that, you know, like all the different kinds of blue jeans or toilet paper, dating options, whatever. I mean, I've already made that decision, so life's a lot simpler for me. But too many decisions creates anxiety. We know all about that. Yet I think what the teaching here is that sometimes we feel anxiety because we don't recognize the right decisions. Because we haven't stood we're going too fast to see the fork in the road. We're, we're going along the easy route. We're going with the crowd. We're just not seeing. And, and, and we forget sometimes that no decision is a decision. And it's not always the best decision. So stand. And then the Lord says to Judah, look. Stand at the crossroads and then look. Now you stop your journey just for a moment. Uh, the looking is about investigation. It's about consideration evaluation. It's about thoughtfulness. It's really about wisdom. You look down the different paths. You look this way and you look that way as far as your eye can see. And you ask yourself, what does that look like? Where would this one take me? You might even see a traveler coming off from that direction and you might ask them, what's it like up the road? Is the journey hard or, or easy? You're, you're looking down these different pathways Jesus says no one builds a tower without adding up the cost. No one goes to war without first considering whether 10,000 can defeat an army of 20,000. He's talking about looking, thinking, considering. Jeremiah was a student of Israel's great wisdom tradition. And the Lord spoke 
through him one day and the Lord said this to Judah, for my people are foolish, they do not know me. They are skilled in doing evil, but, not, but do not know how to do good. This is Jeremiah 4.22. And what we learn from this and other oracles in Jeremiah is that wisdom is a skill. And wisdom is skill in doing good. It's the opposite of, of doing evil. It's wisdom in making good decisions. It's the ability to discover, as we see in our verse, where the good way lies. This is wisdom. Wisdom is really the art of living well. It's not the same thing as intelligence or mental capacity. Uh, it's not the same thing as education or acquiring knowledge, both of which are, are gifts and, and important. But I mean, you, you can be a Mensa and not even know how to talk to your child. You can be a PhD and walk into a wall. Wisdom is about the skill of living well. Now God has two ways of leading us, guidance and wisdom. Guidance is when God tells you what to do. Wisdom is when God expects you to discover what to do. It's very important. Guidance is when the Holy Spirit, for example, gives Paul a vision to go west over to Macedonia. But wisdom is when Paul avoids the city gate in Jerusalem and decides to take a basket lowered from the wall instead and not get ambushed. Guidance is when Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor to a rich young ruler. Wisdom is when Jesus says to stewards, let's see how you multiply the talents that God has given you. What decisions will you make? God does give us spiritual guidance. We spent a lot of time in our Holy Spirit series talking about that. But the normal way that, that God gets us where he wants us to be is through wisdom. It's through us making our own decisions. It's us looking at the options and choosing the good way. This is what I think the Lord is saying through Psalm 32 when he says to Israel, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, but do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is saying to Israel, you know what? I trust you. I want to trust you. I don't want to have to put metal in your mouth and jerk your head to the side like you do with a horse. Not even a good way to lead a horse, by the way. And, but you're not a horse, the Lord says. You're a human being. And as a human being, made in my image, you share the dignity of causality. And, and, I, and I will teach you and I will instruct you. And then you'll grow up and you'll begin to internalize my word, my law in your life in such a way that you can make good decisions yourself. You can make the decision that I would make if I were standing at your crossroad. That's wisdom. That's looking. As it turns out, contrary to what we sometimes assume, there is not just one road to get us where God is leading us. I don't believe that there is. I believe God said, you could take the short road, you could take the long road. You can take the one that has two turns in it, you can take the one that has three turns in it. You can make a good decision and I'll be delighted. You can make a bad decision and I will just re redemptively reroute you. That's God's grace, isn't it? He's going to get us there. He wants us to grow up along the way. Learn and exercise wisdom. So look, are you drawn to one road more than another? You get to, you get to say, look. Have you made a pro-con list? Look. Have you sought the counsel of other travelers, especially older, wiser travelers? Look. And then ask. 
Now, this is where it gets interesting. This implies a conversation. Ask. You, you see that? Ah, there's somebody else at the intersection. I didn't see them before, but now I see. Ask. Oh, I'm in, I'm in conversation with somebody. I'm not alone here. Someone travels with me. There's a sacred companion. Ask. And so ask for what? Well, the Lord says, ask for the ancient paths. What are the ancient paths? Well, they could be just the well-worn paths that our forebears have traveled. It's always better to learn from the mistakes of other people. But also, oftentimes those well-worn paths are not the best paths to follow. And in fact, the Hebrew here suggests that he's talking about not just the ancient, but the eternal paths, the lasting paths. Most scholars think that the Lord is speaking of the scriptures here, what we call the Bible. A little bit more history. That same time, 622. In 622, Israel found a lost scroll in the temple. Judah did. You can read about it in 2 Kings 22. Apparently, young King Josiah is doing some temple renovations, you know, putting subway tile in there. And in some back room, they find, there it is, there's a scroll. They go, oh my gosh. And they bring it to the king and the priest and they read the scroll. And most scholars have come to believe since Jerome, actually, that it was some form of the book of Deuteronomy. And the king has this rat and he tears his robe and there's a massive revival that breaks out in Judah because they realize they're in the presence of a sacred companion. That they don't face this crossroads by themselves. They read God's word. See, the ancient paths are the covenant promises of, of God who says to them in this moment, in Egypt, I called you out of slavery. I carried you through the Dead Sea. On Sinai, I called you my own. I carried you through 40 years in the wilderness. I walk with you even through the shadow of the valley of death. And now you find yourselves with me at this crossroad. And of course, for us, the ancient paths include the new covenant, which the Lord promised Judah through Jeremiah 31, 31. The Lord says to us, I, I will write my law in your heart. I gave you my son. I forgave, forgave your sin. I broke the power of death. I clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus. I put you in the body of Christ and I put the spirit of Christ in you. I empower you to live and share the good news that Jesus is king over all and will one day make all things new. And now you find yourself with me at this crossroad. Ask. Ask for a word from the Lord. Ask for the word of God. Read the Bible. Ask the sacred companion to speak. Jesus himself guides our understanding of the scriptures. We never read the Bible alone. Now Jesus, our sacred companion, may not tell us which road to take, but he will always tell you the story that you're in. He'll always tell you the meaning of the journey that you're on. He'll always tell you the nature of the one who is ever faithful at your side. Oftentimes I am standing and looking, but I'm doing so as one who's in the wrong story. Do you know what story you're in? Are you still living in the story of the culture or your family of origin or the story of your own fears or your own loss or your own small dreams? Which path invites you to the story of Jesus, to the adventure with Jesus God is a speaking God. He's in conversation with you. He's there, Francis Schaeffer says, and he is not silent. So ask. 
And then finally walk. Because we can't stay at the crossroads, can we? The day moves on. The adventure awaits. You, you stand. You've looked. You've asked. And now you stretch out that foot and you take a step. You walk. You're making a good decision. Take that step boldly and walk. This is wisdom language. Walk. Walk in a new way. Walk in your chosen way. Walk trusting and knowing the story that you're in. In Israel's wisdom tradition, the key to walking was, to, the key to walking where the good way lies, as, as the Lord says, is what the tradition calls the fear of the Lord. And we'll be talking about this. The fear of the Lord, as Jeremiah discusses it and as other wisdom teachers discuss it, is the beginning of wisdom. We see that, for example, in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Tremper Longman, this Old Testament scholar who actually did one of our deep dives during the pandemic here, came here virtually. He says, why didn't they say the love of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It's kind of an interesting question, right? The fear of the Lord, it feels weird. Here's what, here's what Dr. Longman says. He says, the fear of the fear of the Lord is the sense of standing before the God who created everything, including humans whose very continued existence depends on him. The emotion is appropriate for wisdom because it demonstrates acknowledgement that God is so much greater than we are. He takes our breath away and makes our knees knock together. Such fear breeds humility and signals a willingness to receive instruction from God. This fear is not the fear that makes us run, it's the fear that makes us pay attention and listen. So love is undoubtedly part of this, right? His love for us, our love for him. But, but the fear comes when we recognize we're standing before someone who's so much greater than ourselves, someone who takes our breath away. And, and that emotion causes us to pay attention, to listen with humility and to receive instruction. If you could roll back my own journey and go back to that moment where a young George met a young Anne, you'd find me in a similar posture. Anne literally took my breath away. I was not just falling in love with Anne. I was actually terrified every time I saw her. I was literally terrified. I was sick in Cambridge working for college students. She came, she came up to nurse me back to health. And it was wonderful and terrifying at the same time. My knees were knocking. I was paying attention. I was making different decisions that I would make if she were not there, right? It was as though my very existence depended on this young woman. And had no idea at that time how true that would be. And so, yeah, we're all grateful for Anne. So maybe wisdom begins with fear because we tend to fall in love with our own images of God. But we feel fear when we stand before the real God, the living God, who must, as king, conquer us before he calls us to join him in conquering the world with his grace. And that's uncomfortable. We, we, in the presence of the living Jesus Christ, find ourselves undone, breathless, knees knocking, giving him our attention, humble, waiting his instruction. We're devastated in his presence, but we're also saved. We discover that the ground of our being is holiness and grace. And it's in this that we must walk. 
So what does it mean to walk in the presence of a sacred companion who's made himself known in Jesus Christ? Not my Jesus, not your Jesus, the real Jesus, the living, risen Jesus. So anyway, in brief, that is, according to Jeremiah 6.16, how you make good decisions. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it. Stand, look, ask, walk. And we'll explore this more in the next two weeks. But let me just give you two examples of what this kind of wisdom can look like. First, uh, decisions that we make in sports. I'm wondering if any of you saw the press conference, uh, the ESPN press conference after the Women's World Series Championship. If you, if you didn't see it, you've got to see it. Uh, just um, search softball winning faith and watch that video sometime today. The ESPN reporter asked uh, the, the players on a panel at the University of Oklahoma, you know, they won the World Series. How do they keep playing with such joy? How do they manage their anxieties and the pressures of, of competition at that level? And the team captain says this. She says, Jesus. On national TV, she says, Jesus. She says, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. Any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated. In a good mindset, no matter what the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year. But if it was the other way around, listen to this. Joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So that's really the only answer to that. Because there's no other way softball can bring you that. Because of how much failure comes in it. And just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. Wow. And then the next student says, yeah... You know, um, we won the World Series my freshman year two years ago, and I just really felt really empty after it. I was confused by that, so I turned to Jesus. She came to faith in Jesus, and that made the difference this year. And then the next woman next to her says, well, once I turned to Jesus, I, and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just on softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom, I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those, these great testimonies that have really shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. And they just go down the line with story after story of Jesus, the sacred companion. And I think, by the way, that they were telling us about the rest that is the promise for those who make good decisions. Because when you fear the Lord, you don't have to fear anything else. And that brings deep rest. So these are wise women and they make good decisions. Let's think about another example. Second, decisions in church. Maybe you've heard that we've had to lay off some staff. And that's really hard. It's hard for them and it's hard for all of us. And maybe you're thinking, what in the world are these elders doing? Let me tell you what your elders are trying to do. First, we stood. We realized we're at a crossroads. The pandemic and polarization of the last few years have asked all of us to reevaluate what's important to us. And we're a smaller church now, which means we have a smaller budget. Our elders are anticipating a $1.2 million difference between what we could spend this year and what we think will come in next year. Now we have very strong reserves, but they realize that if we could make a hard decision now, would allow us to make better decisions later. So we stood. So there's a decision to be made here. And then we looked. 
We looked at the different paths available to us. We looked at a changing culture. We, we looked at neighbors who don't yet know Jesus increasingly or anything about Jesus. We, we looked at neighbors who don't think of church as a resource so they're not coming to strengthen their faith. We, we look at neighbors who are not raising their church, their children in the story of the Bible. And then we looked at each other. We looked at our staff. We looked at our congregation and the many, many gifts that God has given us collectively in this church family. And we said, wow. We considered several paths. We could go backwards. I mean, all of us, I think, would love to go back to the past that we know and love. But we realized the DNA of UPC is always to trust God and go forward. That's where the good way lies, as hard as it is. So we looked. And then we asked. We studied the scriptures together. We prayed in faith and asked for guidance and wisdom. We sensed the sacred companion reaffirming our mission. I want to put it on our screen again just to remind you. Here's our mission statement. Maybe you're new and you haven't seen this. We are a family of communities joining Jesus to transform our lives and the lives of neighbors at the University of Washington, in our neighborhoods, and all around the world. We realize maybe there's never been a harder time for this mission, but there's never been a more important time for this mission. This is what the world needs. It's what we need. And this is our calling. We know that because we asked. And then finally, we began to walk. We took our first steps. Boy, some hard ones. I know. We began to reimagine ways of engaging one another in that transformation from the youngest to our senior saints. We took steps towards fresh ways of engaging neighbors, college students, kindred. And we feel the pain of the transition as we walk. We're feeling and mourning that pain, but we're trusting the sacred companion at our side. We're walking. And you know what? As we did these four things, what we discovered? We don't always get it right. We make mistakes. The Holy Spirit is still teaching us. We've learned that we could have done it better. In fact, a session, a session we want to issue a public apology. I'm putting it up on the screen so you can see it. Take a picture if you want. The process we followed failed to include input from the affected communities, and we're sorry. We are sorry about that. Here's what I've discovered over the years, that this is part of wisdom making mistakes and learning from others. Proverbs 25:12 says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise rebuke to a listening ear. Let me read that again. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise rebuke to a listening ear. God help us all to have listening ears. There is such a thing as a healthy complaint. It's not the same as criticism. And it's important for us to listen to that. Even when criticism comes towards me, I've learned that there's oftentimes a bit of truth. I, I want to listen because I can learn something there and become a better follower of Jesus. And I want you to know Session is listening. And Session is committed to taking whatever steps it can towards healing. But I also want you to know I am very optimistic about your future. Because you're here today bringing your faith into this church family. Because for 115 years, God has done great things through this church, more than we could have asked or imagined. That's about the faithfulness of God, not the strengths or wisdom of his people. 
I'm optimistic because I've, I see the evidence of God's work in this church every single day today, this church today. And I, I, I'm optimistic because God has promised to do a new thing. And I'm eager for that. And so are you. Yes, we're at a crossroads today. Yes, we have a great adventure with Jesus ahead. But we need you. Even if you're here just for the very first time, we do need you to participate. We need you to stand and look and ask and walk with Jesus and with us. We need you to walk with your finances. We need you to put the Lord to the test and bring the full tithe into the storehouse. We need you to walk with your time. We can't just sit here. We've got to serve here. Every member in ministry. We need you to walk next door. We need you to walk with kindred. We need you to walk with college students. We're going to need your help to host the inn, our college ministry on Tuesday nights this fall. You know, when I saw that clip come through the World Series Championship, I texted a UPCer who has a day job with college students. I said, Brian, what, what can we do at UPC to put our Husky women in a position to say something similar about Jesus when they get the title, right? And the answer was, more of us loving them and modeling life with Jesus. That's what they apparently had and that's what we're going to need as well. I'm reminded of a time when a friend said, you know, there was a time at UPC when being, just being at UPC and growing in your faith meant being in relationship with university students. That's why one of our value is growing with students. That's why we exist. That's why God put us here 115 years ago. If some of us have wandered from that path, and, and I think maybe, you know, we don't have that experience as much. Maybe we all have in some way. It's time to come back. It's time to recognize that we're at a crossroads. I'm optimistic. I'm not just optimistic. I'm confident. And I'll say that because of what Paul says in the book we've been studying these last four weeks. I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so good to be reminded of the story we're in as we gather and worship and sing these songs and be drawn in these prayers, hear your word, experience Jesus Christ. We pray, now we cast ourselves upon you, believing in your mercy and your adequacy and the adequacy that doesn't come from ourselves, that comes from you. We know that we're weak, but we know that you're strong. We know that your grace is sufficient and your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So lead us forward from this place. Do not let us go from this place unless you lead us forward. We pray in Christ's name, amen.